guys don't get fired, they get burned. We are the SpyFi guys, and this is Burn Notice. Hello and welcome back to the SpyFi guys, where we cover spy fact, spy fiction, and everything in between. I'm Zach. And I'm Christian. And today we are back with our rerun summer, where we've been looking at TV show pilots for the most part. And this time it was very much a summer show with Burn Notice from 2007. Yeah, and this was a show that I I watched as it came out. I remember loving this. This was like, I think it was the same year that Chuck came out as well. And it was also post-Casino Royale, so spies were back. And it was just... It was a great year for spy action, and I remember this. I was just so hyped for this show. So I was really into the show for a while. I didn't make it through the entire run because it went on for so long. I mean, but it's, it's seven first seasons. seasons were great. It's not as many seasons as, say, Archer. Well, we'll talk more about why I got out of it later, but it's similar to why I never started The Americans. Fair enough. Do you have the synopsis from IMDb? Michael Weston, a contract agent for various agencies, including the CIA, finds that a burn notice has been issued for him. Stranded in Miami, he takes the case of a caretaker accused of stealing millions from his boss. So we start with a man in a gray suit in an African nation. We find out later this is southern Nigeria. Now this man, of course, is Michael Weston. And we are introduced to him via narration. And there's a lot of narration in this show. Yeah, but the first episode has more than most. Hmm. Let me go back to that, because I think there's constant narration in this show. It's not just not just, you know, just here. So I think I don't know. I don't agree with that. It's been a quite a while since I've seen it. But uh, what I recalled from your average episode is he would only do a voiceover when he's doing a MacGyverism, which we'll get more of that later. Eh, well, no, I no. That's what I remember. It's been a while no. since I've seen it. I will say because and this may give away how I felt about the show. I ended up watching a few more episodes after this too. It is very narration heavy. A Mercedes pull up and some guys with guns step out of the Mercedes. He goes with them. There's a super cramped back seat. Here's where we get sort of, he's a little quippy. He's more quippy than say James Bond. I mean, quippy is one way to put it. I would put it as he's more of a snarky asshole in this than I remember him being in the show in general. But not to the level of, say, Archer. Well, no, no one's to the level of Archer. But in this episode, he gives off this vibe of, like, I'm too cool for school, and I kind of put down the people around me, which is really not the way I remember him being in the show. It's almost like he's a character, and characters change, <laughs> like in a TV show. Well, this was on USA, where characters are welcome. That was their, their catchphrase. <laughs> oh, I remember very well. Uh People he's with think he's CIA. He's not technically. He's a contractor who works for the CIA. He meets with Boris, wannabe warlord. And it's the first of many title cards. This reminded me, but in a much better way, of The uh, Longest Day with all the title cards. Yeah, the title cards here come sliding in with a thunk sound. And it's fun. And also, they're not just person, rank, all that sort of stuff. This is actually, all right, short description of who they are, but like kind of quippy. Yeah, and it's often kind of funny. Yeah, exactly. So, Michael is there to pay Boris to guarantee security for a bunch of oil fields, a.k.a. basically pay him off to so he stops bombing them. Yeah, you might call that uh, appeasing terrorists, negotiating yeah. with terrorists. Interesting. Right. So, as he's calling for the wire transfer and giving the ABA number, that's when he finds out that he has a burn notice on him. He's blacklisted. As this goes south, he gets beat up by Boris's men. He lies yeah. and says that he was actually going to steal the money and blame it on them just so he can get out of there. Yeah, I felt like that was a pretty good explanation for why they didn't just immediately murder him, which if he were not the main character, I feel like probably would have happened. Yep. Boris's men take him downstairs. He spits out a bunch of blood and tells him that he's going to get sick in the car. So they take him into the bathroom and where we have a bathroom fight. This is... Post Casino Royale's bathroom fight, but obviously pre Fallout's bathroom fight. Yeah, every time I see a bathroom fight, I think of this scene. This scene? Yeah, well, actually, Thank I'm going to give away one of my favorite lines here, which is whenever someone starts fighting in the bathroom, I always think of his line, lots of hard surfaces. <laughs> Usually because someone's face is about to go into a urinal. Or the sink, or. Yeah, there are a lot of hard surfaces. So, yeah, good. Mm. So, here's the thing I did not remember from this is that he actually. 
shoots both of them and kills them. But you don't see it. You just hear two very, you know, silent bullet sh- shots. Yes, but, that's a good point. I did not remember that either. Yeah. So outside, he steals a dirt bike from a guy, says he'll you know, leave it at the airport for him to pick it up. And this chase is very Skyfall, like the beginning of Skyfall. I mean, he's even in a gray suit. He's going through markets. He's being chased by other, another car. I mean, certainly Ethan Hunt gets into plenty of motorcycle chases, Yeah, but too. it specifically like, looked like, I mean, the gray suit, the dirt bike, going right. through markets. It was very Skyfall, you know, even though it predates Skyfall by about, what, five years or so. Mm-hmm. So he's driving through the open air markets um, and chased by the Mercedes and it crashes and everyone in the market pulls a gun on each other because apparently southern Nigeria is like what the world's leading gun runner. He calls it like the gun running capital of Africa or something like that. So Michael manages to get on the plane and subsequently passes out. Here's where I noticed that the airplane that he gets on and the one that's shown in stock footage taking off are two different planes. Very nice. I did not notice that. Yeah. Uh, I also was kind of curious. This is maybe a bit of a nitpick. Yeah. There's a lot of shots in this pilot that get replicated in the series opening credits. And one of them is of him running past a guy in the airport holding some paperwork, like a passport. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, why did that work? I guess they do kind of explain it later that the agency told this plane to go to Miami. I mean, he's burned, yes, but he also... Oh, oh, you mean that part? I don't know. I wasn't sure if he actually... If he got on that plane to where it was supposed to go and and then the airplane, another plane, took him back to Miami. Because they have a bunch of other passengers on it. Well, presumably their computer systems just aren't all up on the changing developments. It just kind of undermined the whole thing of like him having absolutely nothing. But it, it does kind of get explained, so it's fine. Like, so he's burned, but he's not like on a most wanted list or anything, so he can still travel. Uh, yeah, for now. He wakes up in a cheap motel in Miami. There's a woman in a chair next to the bed, who we find out is Fiona, the ex-girlfriend. What I noticed here is that her Irish accent is super strong in this episode. It is much stronger than in the other episodes I watched. Yeah, I remember there's a part where she says, I can't be sounding like a leprechaun now, can I? I thought that was in this episode, but apparently it's not. I also noticed in this scene, there's jaunty music, like very happy music. Do you notice this? No. And then also they have an Archer-Lana dynamic, sort of. Where I think Lana calls him, or not Lana, I think Fiona (laughs) calls him a bastard. Yeah. And and said something like she never wanted to see him again, but she had to. Do you remember this? Okay, I'm not going to label every single, you know, relationship with, with exes as a Lana Archer dynamic, because that, that is a very specific dynamic that is not, I don't see here necessarily. I suppose that's true. It's not like they start immediately shooting zingers at each other. No, yeah, it's it, no. their exes. And although they're, you know, at least fair, like the fact that she actually came, because apparently she's still his emergency contact, the fact that she came at all says that, okay, yes, they may have had a bad breakup, but there's still something there. Well, I'm going to have more to say about this later, so stay tuned. Yeah, so we find out here that, yeah, the airline was instructed to fly him there, so it's unclear if it was the same airplane or a different airplane. Mm. Also, she called his mom, who was thrilled to find out that he's home, because apparently he's from Miami. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a surveillance team of FBI agents outside. Michael asks Fee to run interference for him, and distract them while he goes somewhere else. Yeah, that's a recurring theme. So this part is the first example of the burn girls or the burn notice girls. So I remember back in the day. I was like, there's really only Fiona for Michael. But yes, no, it is all of the bikinis. Right. So I remember back in the day, I watched a behind the scenes or maybe a director's commentary. So little flashes of memory came back to me while I was watching this about what they had to say. And one of them was how much fun they had finding what they called burn girls or burn notice girls. Because it's constant and it's every episode. I think this one has more than normal, though. I will say, have you been to Miami? Uh, Maybe a long time ago, and I don't really remember it. I've been to Orlando. No, I've been to Miami more than 10 years ago, but around the time that Burn Notice was still on the air, actually. Mm-hmm. You go to the red parts of Miami, and there are always just, you know, women walking around in bikinis. I so, see. It's not inaccurate, but it is gratuitous. Characters welcome. This is USA. 
He goes into a nice hotel. He asks for a room facing a wall, no windows, far from the elevators, close to the exits. His card is declined. Finds out that his account is frozen. He's cut off. Apparently, you know, the agency or any of the agencies can't take away his skills or what's in his head. So they instead take away his resources. Yeah, I like the sense of building dread Mm -hmm. in this part. So he gets a free hat from a woman advertising some new development in Miami and asks her for where the payphone is. That's a relic. Well, she doesn't know what it is. They make a point of that. So even in 2007, payphones are on the way out. Hmm. So he is trying to get in touch with his case officer, Dan Seabills. The person who answers the phone says there's no one here by that name. And he's like shouting in a public place about his case officer and like all these details about him. Yeah, I felt like Michael was kind of slow to get the message here. Like, does he not know what a burn notice is or is he just in denial? It's more that he's in denial because he didn't expect it to happen because he was literally doing nothing wrong. Well, he doesn't have time to be in denial. So he decides, all right, I can't get into this nice hotel, so I'm going to go somewhere cheaper. And he goes to stay somewhere where he says that the surveillance will stand out. If you go to an average business hotel, you know, the FBI can blend in. If you go to a party hotel where everyone's pretty much drunk all the time, they'll stand out. This was great. This is one of the best parts. It was really smart. It was really funny. And so he is on the phone trying to find the address for SecuraCorp. He tears out a page from the yellow pages for a uniform store. Mm-hmm. And here's a knock on a door. He thinks it's a threat. So he like gets a lamp, takes the lampshade off, and he's prepared to use his weapon. It's just two girls who are knocking on his door who have the wrong room, apparently looking for some other guy. And one of them like even pauses like, yeah, you know, he's cute. Yeah, that reminded me of Ethan Hunt. Also, this is a very, very lower stakes version of Munich. When <laughs> <laughs> when Eric Ban is in his hotel room, like going nuts. Oh yeah, but Wait. it's not paranoia if they really are out to get you. Okay, let's rewind back to the why that reminds you of Ethan Hunt. Because random women will be like, "I'd marry him." Oh, like, the from MI three. Okay, fair enough. I was like, yeah. really? so he goes to secure a core dressed as a messenger, where we meet. Lucy, who's an ex-spy. This reminded me of a part, and I th- again, I thought it was in this episode, but apparently it's not. There's a part where he says, all you need is a clipboard, and you can get anywhere. It's another episode, but it's similar idea of anyone in a messenger outfit can get it past security. Yeah, you just act like you're supposed to be there. Yeah. So she says that he can't be there. He's flagged on every government list. She hasn't heard any details, but she just knows that he's out. Full disclosure, I quite like this episode, but this is where one of my complaints began, which is wasting audience time. We know that he's burned, we know that he's out, and they keep reiterating it over and over and over. Except in 2007, the idea of a burn notice is completely unknown to your average public. They need to have that nail hammered in. They do. I disagree, but we've been over this too much. I think that the audience, average middle America, your USA viewers, have no idea what a burn notice is, don't have the concept of it. So they need it hammered in. And hey, even me in, in 2007, I didn't really know. I know what being disavowed was. I did not know what a burn notice was. So looking back, you know, now 2020 or 2022 vision, bad joke. Um, yes, we can say, oh, yes, they're hammering it. But we, we didn't know at that time. Okay, this is from like a filmmaker's perspective, though. I, I like things that are efficient. Your audience is an idiot and needs to know things and needs All it right. hammered in. Michael's broke and is, you know, asking for any help that she can give. She says she doesn't have stacks of cash lying around, but she might have a job for him. And says she'll call Sam Axe, who Michael knows. Apparently, he's been sponging off a of rich divorcee's. And Lucy will throw him a job every so often yeah this part was also a little bit inefficient where he didn't start to lucy so he can talk to sam so sam can give him the job why can't lucy just give him the job because then we need sam later sam. well then why not just have him meet sam and skip lucy because this is the only scene she's at because sam is on the outs already with any agency uh, and we need someone who's still connected to the spy world i suppose i don't think you do but it's fine well, you don't in the long run, but here, establishment, you do. What I'm getting at is this episode feels a bit padded, and we'll have more about that later, too. 
Well, it's also a pilot episode where they basically need to introduce every single aspect of what the show will be. So you I don't know about every single aspect. It, pretty much. That, that is what a pilot's job is. Because they need to sell it to the network, so they need to show exactly what the show will be. So they, it's basically a blueprint for everything going forward. That is a pilot. Yeah, I know, but I'm just comparing it to things like Archer. Not every character in Archer was introduced in the pilot. Not everything they did or would do, but sorry. The job that uh, she has is talking to an operations manager for an estate in Miami Beach. Apparently the place got robbed and he's in some sort of trouble. And then Lucy gives him some cash to get himself cleaned up, get some new clothes. So we meet Sam by... (laughs) By his reaction to a woman walk in a bikini walking by. We find out that he's not eligible for clearance anymore. So it doesn't really matter who he hangs out with because he's just a drunk. I also remember Bruce Campbell saying in the featurette how strange of a role this was for him. Because he lives in the Pacific Northwest. Oh. <laughs> and this character was a sun lizard who just is tan all the time and is in the sun all the time. So uh-huh. it was definitely a change for old Bruce. Yeah. So he also might know a place for Michael to stay. So Michael goes to the estate, which is very fancy. He meets Javier, the caretaker. Apparently there was $22 million worth of property stolen, including art. Javier is played by one of the cops from Dexter, if you Uh, ever watched Dexter. And his boss, whose name is Pyman or something like that. No. Pine, yeah. Pine. So the guy who plays him was the devil in this show called Reaper, which I think came out around this time. A lot of stuff. He's in uh, Agent Carter. He's in so much stuff. Yeah, but isn't he basically always a bad guy? Yeah, pretty much. The reason that Javier is under suspicion is because his code was used to disable the alarm, which is the master alarm code. Classic inside job. He's all that his son has, so he really can't afford to go to jail. Okay, so again, the son reminded me. We get a little bit of Michael Weston being unnecessarily kind of an asshole. Like There's a part where he's like, yeah, I know, please help me. Please don't make my son an orphan, yada, yada, yada. I get it. Do you remember that part? Yes, I do. I, I was like, Michael, dude, come on. I mean, That's not the Michael Weston I know. Yes and no. <laughs> because the Michael Weston we know is built over you know years of that, and we see his softer side. But here off, he's coming right back from being in the agency the whole time. Or not in the agency, but working with spies and other people like that. Not necessarily with your average citizen. Yeah, that's why I would expect him to act like that towards a spy or a criminal or someone else that's in the biz, not just some random person. It's just surprising. I mean, it's also to show us how desperate he is, and he's just in it for the money at first. Yeah, he doesn't have to say that, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he's a, he being a character, and characters are welcome. <laughs> Michael goes to talk to the boss, Mr. Pine, who's the rich guy. Uh, Javier apparently has been with him for years. The artwork that was stolen was uh, English Impressionist, but an irreplaceable. Mr. Pine says okay, that he, Michael can talk to Vince who's head of security. He asks Vince about any enemies, but Vince is very sure that it was Javier. Vince should have played Flass in Batman Begins. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, Would have been perfect casting. Except we need a different kind of Flass, as opposed to the kind, the one who was in the no- graphic novel versus the one who was actually in the movie. It was yeah, that- characters. I just want to see Jim Gordon be like, it's been a long time since I've had to take down a Green Beret. That shows Vince. Watch the animated movie then, if you want that. There's there's that too. Back to Burn Notice. We meet Oleg, the landlord. So Michael's going to pay 200 bucks a month for this place that's right next to a club that is open basically all night. of loud booms, booming music. Mm-hmm. Also, there's a neighbor who's a drug dealer who might get in Michael's face. Yeah, sure. also in this part... Oleg is like, oh, Michael Weston, you're a legend. It's like John Wick, where everyone's like afraid of him. Yeah, so it seems like Oleg is former like Russian intel, because he knows of Michael and says, yeah, that there was a theory in uh, Russian intel that he was actually a lot of men, not just one man. So as you know, this is something that rationally bothers me, which is the oh. idea of a famous spy. Eh. James Bond's been doing it for forever. Yeah. And, I mean, that presumes that probably he never got sent against the Russians if they knew about him. Yeah, maybe. But then also, he actually went by Michael Weston because his mom's name is Weston. We learned that later. Ugh, whatever. 
I don't care. <laughs> so he gets a call from his mother, who apparently got his number from Fiona, and she's demanding that he drive her to the doctor. Now, he doesn't have a car, so he steals a car to take his mom. Madeline. Yeah, but before that, yeah. he screams into his pillow. Oh, yes. <laughs> We've never seen a reaction like this. And you know what? His mom really isn't that bad. I don't get what the reaction is. It's... Mm, but yeah, no, I get it. It's like family, they, they know how to exploit your weak points. Like I, I get it, but it's just kind of like, whoa, what's up with that? Again, it's a pilot, so not all the characters are like fully formed yet of how they're going to be. For example, actually, funny you say that. Fiona fully pillow. Oh, and her accent. Yes, we have fully formed. So the mom in the next bit is wearing a wig. Yeah, I, I remember them that. talking about this okay. in the featurette, and they were like, "We tried it with the wig." And it didn't work. So yeah. she gets rid of it pretty quickly. Yeah, in the next episode. <laughs> but yeah, so I like how he says that he doesn't like to steal cars, but he'll do it in a pinch. You know, he'll always try to return it. And especially if it's a work day, he'll try to return it by five. Yeah, that does not work out later in the episode. Spoiler alert. Uh, that was He was borrowing it, but also the guy was still in it. But we'll get there. <laughs> mm. As he's driving Madeline to the hospital, he sees his FBI surveillance and purposefully drives bad makes some wrong turns to try to confuse them and lose them, which he does. Yeah, I like the part where he's like, it's not about driving fast, it's about driving stupidly and waiting for them to screw up. I thought mm -hmm. that was cool. His mom was also screaming at him, saying, you know, why are you making this turn? What are you doing? That You know, watch out for that car. And then also says that she, he should see his brother, Nate. We also find out that his mother is a hypochondriac. Yeah, this reminded me of a DM dropping little plot threads mm -hmm. when you're walking around in a D&D game. We got the mom illness. We got issues with his dad. We got issues with his brother. And I guess issues with his mom, too, besides that. So they get to the hospital. Michael doesn't go in, but calls Dan Siebel's again. Gets no answer. So Michael goes home, and he has to get through the VIP line at the club to try to get home. This is one of my favorite parts, was him getting through. He's just like, excuse me, excuse me, with the suit. <laughs> I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> he is building a fake pipe bomb to send to Dan. A pipe bomb that has zero explosives in it. Mm -hmm. So he goes to see Javier and meets his son David. He's like psycho. Oh, because he keeps asking if he's going to shoot the bad guys. Shooting the bad guys is one thing, because I oh, get that. Going? But the drawing of him <laughs> shooting someone is a little I'm bit sure. over the top. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. He says that he will finish what he starts and that has to do it his way, no questions asked. Michael goes to see Sam for some intel on Vince. We find out that Vince was a ranger washout and the PMC in Iraq. And now he needs to go find the buyer. Sets up a meet with Barry. Yeah, and I remember Barry from other episodes. He isn't just in this one. No, he sticks yeah. around. So Barry is a money launderer, and so Michael asks him to find an art dealer, someone who might deal in hot paintings. Barry says he might know a guy. Yeah, all these conversations about art and this and that is a little bit highbrow for me. I find it kind of hard to follow. Eh. But it definitely gives you the impression about what the show is, which is like a detective show as well as some spy action. What it kind of reminds me of, a bit is uh it's a bit of magnum pi in there with like you know the guy and his friends who are all help out like would do like pi cases and mm -hmm. i have never seen either version of magnum pi i've seen a few of the original i've seen uh most of the first season and some of the sex season some of the second season of the reboot but yeah that's basically the gist of it it does sound and similar to that spy stuff there's no overarching story about spies oh okay Going home, he has an encounter with some people who are waiting for Sugar, the drug dealer. But he tells him to get out of the way. And he gets a call in the morning. He thinks it's his mom, but it's actually his Dan, the handler, who says that he spent a long time talking to the FBI about why Michael sent him a pipe bomb without any explosives in it. He says he doesn't know much about the burn notice, but whoever did this wants him on ice. And if he leaves Miami, he'll heat up. Yeah, I also seem to remember at some point they say that if you kill people... Then they also will bring the police down on you. But yeah. that's never mentioned here. I always thought that was like why he doesn't kill people on the show. Well, I mean, mostly also because dead bodies leave a trail, usually. I also think he doesn't like to. I don't remember whether that's said explicitly or not, but it comes up. He meets with Walter, the art dealer. And he asks about British Impressionist paintings, like the ones that were stolen. Although he doesn't specifically call out that the ones that were stolen. Mm -hmm. Walter says there's nothing on the market right now, but there were several on the market about six months ago from some condo developer 
apparently when no one was interested, that's the price. Yeah, and this scene is the first example of not exactly gay panic, but gay something. Yeah, I wasn't sure what was going on. Like, it ends with the... Uh, the, the guy basically propositioning him. Yeah. And him just laughing it off, which is okay. But there's another one later that I think is worse. If I remember, if the oh. notes come up. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. We'll, we'll get to that. So he breaks into the estate. This is the first <laughs> setup of, like, his obsession with yogurt. When he gets home, he meets Sugar, the drug dealer. Who looks gets- like Eminem. <laughs> or Vanilla Ice. Yeah. Mm. White bleached short hair, yeah. Uh, Michael gets punched in the gut, but Michael gets him in a wrist lock, which I was like, that, I that I recognize that. That's like almost a hop keto move. Nice. It looked good. Tells him to scram. So he goes to break into the estate. Uh, this is the where we get his first uh, mention of his obsession with yogurt. Yeah, he says the reason for that is that if you get caught, you can explain like you just wandered in. And I was <laughs> like, What? Well, his reason for not, like, wearing, like, a balaclava and all black. Although he may also still be wearing all black, but, you know. I think he mostly is. But I'm like, we could take the balaclava off when you get in. (laughs) Uh, Whatever. I guess he's he's saying, like, it's not going to work, but at least you can say something. Yeah. Yeah, so he grabs a yogurt from the fridge, is eating it. He uses, like, putty to fake the fingerprint access on the vault. Yeah, we've seen this a million times in... Various movies and crime movies and such. Really just twice that we've covered. Uh, this will be like the second time. Right, but in other ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, gets into the vault and takes pictures of all the documents. And he goes to see Javier again. He takes pictures with his ancient flip phone. <laughs> and you thought the zoom in enhanced and taken was bad. No, this is still... No, that was still worse. It, oh, sure, it's worse. But this is up there. <laughs> Top okay. 20, maybe. Yeah, right. I just like the flip phones. It's funny. He goes to see Javier again, tells him that Pine stole from himself and is collecting on the insurance money. Javier is set up as the fall guy, and Pine probably had Vince do the actual robbery, but Michael says that he can fight back if they want. Because he always has to get too involved. That's mm-hmm. our guy. Yeah. So Michael meets with Pine again, gives him an update, shows him the photos that he took from the vault, says all of that, you know, is probably something you don't want to come out, but if... Javier is arrested, he, he might say something. So, a little blackmail. Yeah, and this is the other gay stuff. Because he oh, says to Vince, does that shirt come in men's? Yeah. It reminds me of Spider-Man 1 when he tells Bonesaw, oh. nice outfit, did your husband make it for you? Right. So what if he did, Spider-Man? What do you care? The alternative is, because it was so tight, it was like a boy shirt. I don't really know what to say about this, except that I don't think they would make it today. I'm not sure why it's problematic, but it is. Yeah, no, there's something... It did strike me as well. Although I do remember, and I'll, I'll, here I'll be the one going further into the future episodes. Like, is the one point where Sam makes fun of how tight Mike shirts are. Uh-huh. Boy's small shirt. Well, it's definitely a daring look yeah. for a man to wear a tight shirt. But speaking of problematic things, right after this is a very prejudiced line against pit bulls. Now, oh. I'm not one of those people who reacts when people portray pit bulls as, like, violent. Mm-hmm. But apparently that's something the internet has a bugaboo about. Yeah, and what I will say about this is that, yeah, no, it, it's never the pit bull it, to blame. It's always the owner. Or the trainer or whatever, yeah. Well, pit bulls on their own are perfectly good animals. They just need a lot of training, as do a lot of dogs. As do a lot of humans. <laughs> yeah. Like Michael Weston. Wait, so I don't remember this line about pit bulls. He says something like, Blackmail is like a pit bull. If it's on your side, it's very helpful, but oh. it can turn against you and tear your arm off or something like that. Right. I mean, that makes sense for the line, not for the actual. So Michael goes to buy a bunch of cell phones to make a bug. He grabs like the cheapest phone, which is like this bright pink glittery phone, the Hello Sweetheart. Well, he, he says something about how you can use this if the purchasing office won't spring for a real bug. Yeah. I was like, budget cuts. They're back. <laughs> back from Long Kiss Goodnight? Yeah. I was like, it, was all... either, it was either that or Hudson Hawk, but I think it was Long Kiss Goodnight. Yeah, and then he better get a receipt for that cell phone from the guy <laughs> in Munich. So what he does is basically uses the better microphone of the cheap cheap phone, but the better batteries of the other phones and like hot wires it together. It's funny because it looks nothing like a real phone. Like, it looks like someone's obviously tampered with it when we see it later. Yeah. 
Like if the idea was that he was trying to get people to believe someone dropped their hot pink Hello Sweetheart phone in the back of a limo, uh-uh. That didn't work. I think it's just there to listen. I don't think it's there to be discreet. Why not both? This is a spy show. You can actually fit it. Well, the thing is the bigger battery is you really can't fit in that smaller phone. That's that's the trick. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. He's at dinner with Fiona, asks for her help to be just back up on the job. We found out that she was robbing banks for the IRA. So this <laughs> comes back before when she gave the impression that she didn't like him. Mm-hmm. In this scene, she just will help him for no reason. It's just like, okay, I'll help you, sure. I thought she didn't like him. What? But then later, she talks about their relationship, which, again, this show's a little bit dated. Like, all the women always want to talk about relationships. It's a very Stone Age way of thinking. The way of a woman character. Deal with your ex. And especially if it was a bad breakup. Uh I feel like you would want to talk about it. Yeah, but he could be the one to initiate it. Not her. Fair enough. Except, well, but we're given that he's the one who left her. That's true, but he could have been like, Fiona, here's why I left you. It's not you, it's me, it's the job, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Wow, we want to talk about cliches? That was the worst cliched breakup in the history of cliches. Hey, whatever, I'm not a writer this time. (laughs) Not in this episode. Uh Uh-huh. We find out apparently that she was like the closest that he ever got to a real relationship. Also, while this is happening, there are three FBI agents who are watching them eat. Mm -hmm. So they go back to Michael's place. Sugar sent a goon to threaten Michael with a gun, but Fiona takes him out with ease. Yeah, she's kind of psycho about it. She's like, yeah, this fighting's got me going. All right. You kind of see why they broke up. She's all ready to, you know, go inside. And Michael says something to the effect of, you know, violence is a... Aphrodisiac. Aphrodisiac for you, not for me. And then goes to a hardware store to grab some gear to deal with Sugar. So he's going to take out Sugar once and for all. So this part... Yes and no. Well, once and for all, I suppose, is relative. So this part, he's like, don't fight your wars with guns, fight your wars with duct tape. Like, quote. Sorry. (laughs) But this is important because he uses tape, and then two minutes later, he does use a gun. So it's like, (laughs) what are you talking about? You are shooting people. He uses one gun and a bunch of hardware, as opposed to a lot of guns, I think, is the difference. It was silly. But I liked it. I thought it was cool. That uses the tape to measure off where the um, beams are, the internal beams, so it's easier to shoot through. That was cool. I also like that he, you know, he, any you know goon worth their salt has a bulletproof door, but the wall next to the door is just plaster or you know just wood. Yeah, people don't think about that. It's thinking laterally. Mm-hmm. So he shoots through the wall, then goes through the back, like through the drywall. Yeah, basically. And he threatens Sugar and he's like, get out of town. It's like an old west. So Michael has a perch and is watching Fiona, who's ready to provide support. Sam is there too. Yeah, there's some dialogue here that dates the show a little bit when Sam says, now it's all about oil and religion. Yeah. (laughs) It's not like it used to be. What do you think he would have said if they had made that today? I would have had him say something about, now it's all about computers. Yeah, something like that. Now it's all about these crazy guys who live in a basement. Yeah, crypto. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Now that really would have dated that. So apparently Sam's got a cab driver buddy who's going to punch him out to cause a distraction while Sam plants the bug into a Pyre's car. Pine's car. I keep calling it Pyre. They cause a nice big distraction, almost have have a car accident. This is classic burn notice, by the way. Making a huge scene and then slipping something in, if you don't know what I mean. I mean, it's classic misdirection overall, yeah. So, the next day they find that they can hear Pine through the bug. Michael goes to see his mother. He's got some pills from her. They have some more drama about his brother and, like... Yeah, they say that spies are from broken homes a lot. So, this reminds me of the classic heroes thing, how Harry Potter and Luke Skywalker and... Pre-Skyfall James Bond all either had dead parents or absent parents. Because if they had parents, the parents would be like, are you crazy? You can't go fight the Dark Lord and save the galaxy. You gotta stay right here at home where it's safe. Why pre-Skyfall James Bond? He had dead parents who died when he was a kid. Okay, I wasn't aware of that. That's that's the whole bit. (laughs) Were they just not around? Were they ever even talked about in the uh, old movies? In the novels, no. Uh, Yes, but not in the movies. 
Oh, okay. actually, they're probably mentioned in like his obituary in Li- He Only Lived Twice, but not really. Oh, I no. Maybe. <laughs> Brought up in Goldeneye, where Alec Trevelyan says that, you know, your parents had the luxury of dying in a climbing accident, and his parents are Lien's Cossacks. Oh, yeah, I do remember that now. Yes, they have been brought up before, so it's not it's not just something they made up for Skyfall. Yeah, and the scene concludes with his mom guilting him, which is always very effective. <laughs> Sam calls Michael as this is all going on, and apparently that says that Pine t- told Vince to go after uh, Javier's kid because they need leverage of their own. Uh-huh. So Michael grabs his mother's toolbox. Why did I pronounce that weird? Michael grabs mm-hmm. his mother's toolbox, grabs some zip ties and other tools, and then stands in the middle of the road, and he's looking for a big car with no airbags. This reminds me of a part of Doctor Who where he's like standing around and he's thinking. It's not really clear what he's thinking about, and then he does something cool. Excuse me. So he basically carjacks a guy. Even though not basically, he does. And then he smashes the dude's car and then doesn't even say sorry and is just like, see ya, I'm out of here. He smashes the car into Vince's car. Right. But yeah, and gives um, Sean, the guy whose car he... he you know, stole and destroyed. And wrecked. Yeah. I said destroyed. Probably totaled. Yeah. So it gives him the cash that it was in Vince's wallet, as well as Vince's Rolex, which will cover all of that. Have a Rolex he gives him it. stolen property? <laughs> no way. You can't just sell that. A Rolex? Yeah. Maybe in 2008 when paper trails were not what they are. But I think Vincent would put two and two together. Is that like, was, is he going to wait for the cops to show up? I guess he told them not to. Yeah, he'd run, yeah. This scene wasn't the most well thought together. That part, maybe. But the reason why he was looking for a big car with no airbags was that Vince got knocked out by his airbags. Yes. And gave him enough, enough time to cable to, for Michael to cable tie him to the steering wheel. And he'll never have to deal with him again in the whole episode. Uh, uh. He takes David back to his place. He asks David about the black eye. Apparently he's being bullied at school. And I was like, oh no, this... This pilot, so up until this point, actually not this point, but uh, for much of this episode, I was prepared to give it a 9 out of 10. Because <laughs> I thought it was very good. But there's way too many plots. There's five plots in this one hour of television. Okay? There's getting his life together, finding out who burned him, dealing with the drug dealer, helping with Javier, helping this kid with his bully, and then the mob. So it's actually six. Six plot lines. I don't think those are all actual plot lines. Like, the David thing has one setup and one resolution, and that's it. That's not a plot line. That's really trying to get into Michael's head to see, okay, what kind of guy is he actually? And that's so you see the hints of who we see him later in the series, caring about the little guy and stuff like that. Well, what's the hurry? Like, why does it all have to be right here in the pilot? He's helping Javier. Because they need to show all of that, like I said, in the pilot to sell it to the network. That's <laughs> well, what a pilot I, is. That's why it's no, called a pilot. No, I, I get that. It's just too you much know. too fast. Well, we didn't even, I didn't even finish what I was saying about that, is that Michael actually shows him a few moves on how to right. fight bullies. Mm-hmm. Plus bully psychology. Take out the leader first. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera, yeah. So Sam is having coffee with the two FBI agents. He's not, I don't know much. You know, it's just one job we're doing together. And then Michael pops in and introduces himself to the FBI agents. Finds out their names. Asks if they know why they're following him. They say that they don't care. And that's not their orders to, like, ask about why. Okay, so why is this in the pilot? Now, you can tell this show is not made by the CW. Because if this was made by the CW, then Sam spying on Michael would have been stretched out for at least half of a season. And then there would have been a big reveal, and it would have been all dramatic, and they would have argued about it, and one of them would have said, you lied to me, and the other one would have said, I lied to you in order to protect you, etc., etc. But here, it's like, right away. Yes. And? I, I can't tell if you like it or not. No, I don't like it. Because... It's interesting, and I would have liked it if it had been spread out more. Like, you could have the scene of Sam spying on him and informing him to the FBI. Just don't have him find out about it. I now, was so tired of that plot. You said you didn't want five or six plots. That would be yet another plot that we'd have to deal with every episode. Well, then I would have had it cut altogether or have it done later. But oh, if you need to include it... Set it up. You need to set up, okay, why are they not trying to lean on Sam? Turns out they are. But it's also... 
gets rid of the FBI agents in the way after this episode because they know that Sam is watching him. We know that Sam will give them just enough to keep him happy, but not enough that they'll get into Michael's business. So then you could have had that without Michael finding out about it. How? You, you could have had Sam say to them, I'm in with him now. I will feed you what you need to know. But if you guys back off. Yeah, except you're still going to have have Michael find out at some point that he's be, that he's being informed on by Sam. So I like it here. Just get, you know, I don't need that stupid manufactured drama there. That CW drama. I don't need it. I'm just surprised because that's a classic TV show thing that they love to do. They, they don't do it here because it's so tired. But the thing I was thinking about is that... Ten seasons of Smallville, secrets and lies. I, oh, uh, you can't do this, Lex. Oh, no, Lana. I'm done with it. <laughs> so the thing is, because this was back when TV shows had to be very self-contained, I don't think they wanted too many dangling things that had to be crossed over between episodes. Exactly that's my other theory. Well, things like him not getting along with his dad is a little bit different from suddenly FBI agents are there and suddenly they're not. Mm. Where were we? Oh, yeah. So he goes to Javier's house to prep the house. You know what this reminded me of? This reminded me of Skyfall. I thought you were going to say Home Alone, which, which everyone was everyone... reminded of watching Skyfall. Except apparently it's just a spy thing, not just not specifically. Like, I know people were complaining about that thing in Skyfall, but I was completely fine with it. And I'm maybe it's because I watched so much Burn Notice that I was, you know, not surprised to see James Bond MacGyvering an old house. Yeah, I was fine with it, too. I think people just expected it to be a punch-up. Uh, though I did like when he was like, you gotta prep the ground. Bad guys think you're just gonna sit around waiting for them to come and kill you. Mm-hmm. Like, every video game bad guy. They <laughs> literally do that. So he, like, uses, trips the bed and then uses the mattress to block the window, sets up some mirrors. He gets Pine and Vince tricked into thinking that Javier is there. Instead, they just find Michael. He tricks Vince into thinking that his safety is on, so he like looks at the gun and then gets the gun away from him. Vince. Yeah. Pine hears a bunch of gunshots and is like ducking down, and with the light and the mirror, tricks Pine into shooting Vince. Yeah, this plan could have gone wrong in a couple of places, <laughs> but I guess it all worked out. Yeah. But then he puts Pine's prints, say that five times fast, uh, on the inside of the trigger assembly of the gun. So it's got Pine's prints all over it. So he has leverage with that, but also the recording of Pine telling Vince to go after the kid. Yeah, so this is blackmail again. So the same mm-hmm. pitbull analogy again. Where I was like, dude, you have him over a barrel for now, but he's not in prison. He's not going anywhere. He could easily come after you. He has all of that, which would put him away. Yeah, I mean, it's risky, but I guess uh. that's just the way it goes. Everything has to get wrapped up. So he says that, all right, unless he wants all this to get out, Michael wants Vince to confess to the robbery. Javier will get five-year severance pay and a college fund for David. So really pressing his luck there. Yeah. So Michael tells Javier the good news, goes up to the FBI agents who are right there, and asks to borrow their binoculars as he watches David fight back against the bullies. He really didn't need those binoculars. David was no. not that far away. <laughs> I think it was just a power play. Yep. It is funny how kids fighting is depicted as like this wholesome, wonderful moment. <laughs> somehow i feel like if you were seeing your kid which i don't know if we're going to talk about that but you're going to be having soon like fighting <laughs> other kids i don't think you'd be too happy about it it depends on if she's defending herself or she, she's starting the fight he goes back to his place finds the door open and sees surveillance cell photos of him like from the past few days all over the floor just like covering the floor and the middle of it all a welcome <laughs> to Miami magazine. And so with this that, is a, our episode ends. Yeah, so this is another dangling plot thread. That's all right. All right, so let's move on to some spy fact versus fiction. All right, what do you have? So according to spyculture.com, they have an article that says FBI releases almost entirely redacted file on bird notice. Oh. Apparently, in late 2015, an internet user named Emma Best filed a request with the Bureau for any documents that talk about burn notice or the book The Setup, Memoirs of an NSA Security Operation, of which Uh the series is based. I have not read the book. This is all from the article. Okay. Uh, They've received over 100 pages of heavily redacted papers, which for those of you who don't know what that means, it means a lot of heavy black lines were drawn through them. (laughs) So most of it was just apparently people talking about I like this show, Bird Notice. Oh, have you seen the show, Bird Notice? <laughs> That's funny. 
but there's a few people commenting on the spy fact versus fiction part. They talk about how Michael has a network of contacts in the Miami underworld. You can really see the value of an operative of such a network and the skills needed to acquire it. Mm-hmm. It shows the value of good information, intel, and any operation. It's not really so much in the pilot, but Michael compiles dossiers on his targets, right. gets information about them. They also say Byrne Notice does a credible job of portraying the less glamorous aspects of espionage work. For example, Michael's family lives in Miami. They get involved in his life, and he's torn between his desire to maintain a relationship with them and his need to protect them and to avoid opening up himself to them. So the show offers a glimpse of the isolation an operative can feel when they have few confidence and are used to working independently. So finally, what none of the comments and reviews mention, according to Spy Culture, is that the main character in Burn Notice, Michael Wesson, is based on real-life spy Michael Wilson, who was friends with showrunner Matt Nix. Although they got a lot of story ideas from Wilson, they have never actually met in real life. Huh. Fascinating. All right, so next I've got recommended places to stay in a hotel. I've actually got a few different sources for this one. So, Okay. From... <laughs> from the Action Heroes Handbook by David Borgnate and uh, Joe Borgnate. It says, Try to ob- obtain rooms on the side of the hotel that stands higher than the other buildings. Avoid staying in a room that has other rooms overlooking it, which can make it easier for someone to gain entry through a window or balcony. Keep tabs on you f- from across the way or give a sniper a good angle. And uh, reserve your room on at least the sixth or seventh floor of the w- of the hotel. This will make it difficult for anything to be thrown into your room from the ground. Avoid cabana style hotels that are only on ground level. Ground floor entry is the easiest to gain. The Spies Guide: Office Espionage by uh, uh-huh. H. Keith Melton and Craig Pignan. Avoid accepting a room on the ground floor. Illegal entry through ground floor or a window is much easier. Avoid any room that opens directly onto a parking lot and any room that shares a common balcony with another room. Makes sense. And finally, from the CIA's Ask Molly travel tips from May 27 of 2022, they say to, oh, look for a middle floor. Being on the ground floor can leave you more vulnerable to break-ins, but many countries' emergency response personnel aren't equipped to reach higher than more than a few floors off the ground. Consider requesting rooms somewhere in between. And... It was interesting because, like, when I was waiting for him, like, he was listing off all the things he wanted. He didn't specify floor, which was, like, the one thing I knew. It was, like, you don't want ground floor, but you don't want too high. Yeah, that whole bit did seem very real. Yeah. That was cool. All right. So, lastly, how to avoid surveillance in a car. This is from the International Spy Museum's Handbook of Practical Spying. Oh, I didn't know they had one. Yeah, they do. And you should pick it up in their museum store. (laughs) We are not sponsored by the Spy Museum. Nope. So, how to confirm you are being tailed? Uh, it says, take two right turns. Anyone still following you after two right turns is highly suspect, yet you haven't done anything unusual enough to indicate that you are aware of surveillance. U turn. This maneuver raises the stakes. Anyone following and continue to follow is quite likely a tail. Signal for a right turn at an intersection and wait for your suspected tail's right turn signal to come on, then go straight through the intersection and see what happens. Enter a left turn lane at a traffic light then change your mind after the light turns green and continue traveling on straight so basically what michael does is he you know makes all these bad driving turns and uh-huh. does things that he's you know not not supposed to do <laughs> yep we definitely saw that i've got for spy fact versus spy fiction all right so now it's time for our favorite quotes do you want to, i have a bunch so would you like to go first sure i've got know what's like being a spy like sitting in your dentist's reception area 24 hours a day. You read magazines, sip coffee, and every so often someone tries to kill you. The one that you said, guns make you stupid, better to fight your wars with duct tape. Duct tape makes you smart. And then he shoots a guy anyway. <laughs> and lastly, I've got Ford outside has G-series plates. You get you got fast draw hol- off, uh, holsters off the rack suits and cheap loafers. No, you guys are feds. They're feds. It's like, this guy's a fed, this guy's a fed. See, no one cares like the BM. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Okay, I have... Sometimes the truth hurts. In these situations, I recommend lying <laughs> when he's getting beat up. The mm-hmm. part where he's driving in Stuart's car and the shield or the, the sun flap oh, yeah. keeps falling down. He says, you need to fix this. This is really annoying. Mm-hmm. And then finally, when he's talking to Lucy in her one scene, she says, what am I, your complaint department? 
Uh, she delivers it better. All right, so now it is time for our ratings on a scale of 1 to 10 martinis, 1 being Avengers 1997 and 10 being even better than No Time to Die or Taken. How would we rate the pilot of Burn Bonus? All right, why don't you go first? I'm very curious. So I thought in the beginning that this was great. It had good characters, different from what we knew, cool spy action, cool spy gadgets, and, and so on. But then it became overstuffed with plot, as I said. Six different stories, plus dangling plot threads for more. I couldn't give it a 9 out of 10, but it is really good. These are only nitpicks, so I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10 instead. All right, interesting, interesting. All right, so liked all of this, and because I understand how plots a pilot works, I am not bothered by any of those things that you just said. I really like this show and even the pilot like I, it's been a long time since i've seen this i actually remember seeing the last episode of it maybe uh-huh. back in like 2013 or so and and i hadn't seen any of the ones in between so i haven't actually watched all of the show but mm-hmm. i always loved this show and i i'm gonna give it that nine out of ten that you thought it couldn't deserve but i think it does Deserves got nothing to do with that. It's just my uh-huh. opinion. Uh-huh. It's more like how much do these nitpicks bother you? I would say, and they don't because it's a pilot that needs to set up a lot of things. But yeah, I really loved it, and I thought it was really good. So yeah, nine out of ten. Nice. Well, thank everyone for joining us here on the SpyFi Guys. You can find us on social media at the SpyFi Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Christian, and I'm Zach. And we are the SpyFi Guys, signing off. Thank you for listening to the SpyFi Guys. If you enjoyed our podcast, please be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. The theme song from this podcast is Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Films, books, and television shows reviewed by our podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a personal podcast. Any views, statements, or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the participants. They do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the participants may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. Any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual. You can find our podcast on social media at The Spy Fi Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.